0: Good morning, church. Good morning. What an awesome story that was. Um, I want you to invite you to open your Bibles uh, right now and just grab them if you're in the seat racks in front of you. Uh, I'm Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And as a church, we believe that the Bible doesn't need to be a mystery. And so we open our Bibles every time we gather together. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11. If, if you're on your phone or tablet, we'll be in the NIV uh, translation. And our seat rack Bible is page 1136. But we're in the third and final week of a series called Gospel Integrity, going through Romans chapters 9 through 11. If you remember, Henry has said that these chapters are some of the hardest passages in the Bible to understand, and many pastors avoid trying to preach on these chapters their entire career. And so I'm not sure whether to thank Henry or not for giving it to me this weekend, but we are going to get through Romans 11 today. Um, So as we look at what God is going to do about Israel, his people, um, I want to read a quote to you from a famous historical figure about Jewish people. And I'm going to give you a disclaimer. It's a bit shocking. Regarding Jews, I shall give you my sincere advice. First to set fire to their synagogues or schools and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn so that no man will ever see again a stone or cinder of them. Second, I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, for they pursue in them the same aims as in their synagogues. Third, I advise that all their prayer books and Talmudic writings be taken from them. Fourth, I advise that the rabbis be forbidden to teach henceforth on pain of loss of life and limb. Fifth, I advise that safe conduct on the highways be abolished completely for the Jews. And continuing. Yuck. Who said that? Hitler? Mussolini. Now it's Martin Luther, one of the Protestant Reformation fathers. Now there's a lot we could say about this, but I want to be super clear about one some, something here is that it is awful. It's reprehensible. It's not in step with the way of Jesus at all. Part of what precipitated this writing by Luther relates to our passage today. You see, younger Luther was actually very sympathetic to Jews and uh, their resistance against Catholicism. And when he wrote his 95 Theses against uh, Catholicism and how they're incorrectly looking at Scripture, he said, when the true gospel is out there, then the Jews are going to turn to Jesus. And they didn't do as Luther thought that they would, and thus combined with a lot of other factors, this angry, unkind superiority boiled out of him in the last years of his life. And so as we look at these chapters, Martin Luther knew these chapters, but N.T. Wright, as an intro into this section, says this, no Christian today can ignore the fact that for many centuries, anti-Semitism flourished across large areas of Christendom. And the church not only did nothing to prevent it, but added fuel to the fire by declaring, for instance, that the Jews killed Jesus, despite the insistence of all four gospels that it was the Romans. Faced with The present passage, which speaks in every line of God's purposes for Israel, and which proposes a Christian understanding of that difficult and dangerous subject, we must pause and reflect in sorrow and humility on how our own faith and scriptures have been abused in support of dangerous prejudices. And we must pray for wisdom to do better. There's a correlation to what's happening in today's text of Romans 11. There seems to be some Gentile arrogance. Arrogance by the non-Jews that are in Rome. And part of what made this easier is understanding some historical context before we jump into the scripture is that in 49 AD, Jews, including Jewish Christians, were all kicked out of Rome. And about five years later were allowed to return, and the book of Romans came shortly after that. So that's some context for us to understand that. And so The Gentiles are saying, Paul, you've shown us this big story about the people of Israel in which God worked through and through. So shouldn't they be receiving Jesus in droves? It seems we're the beloved people now. We're the special ones now. Because this this section of Scripture is answering this one question. If most of Israel hasn't believed in Jesus, their Messiah, King, Savior, does that mean his promises to them have failed? And thus God has rejected Israel. And that's what Paul's going to answer this direct question today through a kind of case study on ethnic Israel, showing what is God doing with Israel and his promises? And with this, we're going to see three shifts of the heart that God's people are called to hear, which applies to us as well. Three shifts of the heart to live in God's promises. And we're going to see some warning lights go off in the text. And I'm going to point those out as we go along. So that's where we're going What is God doing with Israel and his promises for them? And what are these shifts of the heart that they need and we need as well? So we're going to try to read through all of chapter 11 today and get through it. Uh, But first we need to pray before we go to the scriptures. We need God to illuminate his word to us, which I invite you to just pray with me. Heavenly Father, throughout scripture you show us your faithfulness to your people. As we look to your word now, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate your truth. Guide us and give us understanding as we seek to know you more. Keep us close to you as we walk the path you've called us to. Remind us of your goodness and the hope that we have in your never-ending love and mercy. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. Just stop there for a second. He's talking about Israel, but he phrases it, did God reject his people? He's kind of like, you crazy? You reject his people? No means. And he's going to give us three reasons that's a crazy question. And he, he gives himself as the first one. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm the Israelite of all Israelites. That's what he's saying. I'm reason number one, and I'm with Jesus. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? He's now going to give a historical reason, Elijah. And this is what he says, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer, answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What's he doing? Okay, he's bringing us back to a time in Israel, where it seems like rejection was at its highest of God. Elijah thinks he's the only one that there is. And he's saying, even at that time, there were, there was a remnant, there was 7,000. And so the third reason he gives, he says, verse 5, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. And we don't have to go further back than Acts chapter 2 to remember the Jews that were gathered and Peter preaching and 3,000 of them coming to know Jesus. So we know there's at least 3,000, a remnant. God has not given up on Israel. He hasn't rejected them. Okay, continuing in verse 5, a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul's trying to be, like, really ridiculously clear here. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's grace, grace, grace. That's it, all the way. And this is good news. It's not a works plan. It's not a grace plus works plan. It's grace and and grace alone. Amen. Back to verse 7. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain? The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. Okay, I mean... Why could Israel search so earnestly and not obtain? That doesn't seem fair at all. Okay, but we need to remember some verses from a couple weeks back in chapter 10. If you want to flip back a page, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, Paul talking about the Israelites, he says, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness basically they sought righteousness through their own power their own not through faith in god's grace and this is warning light number one that we need to look at warning light number one don't seek righteousness through your own power it's grace and grace alone don't base salvation on any works of your own avoid do-it-yourself salvation avoid do-it-yourself salvation or it's going to end up looking like this guy in this project here Okay, for those of you who may be listening on the podcast, we're watching a video of a guy in a fan, and it was an epic failure. That's all we can say about that. And here's the thing. Need help? I resonate with this. I stink at do-it-yourself kind of things. Uh, But the thing is, this is is what the people of God need to be. We need a people that go, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to righteousness, we need help. We did need help, and we do need help. We're the people that need help, and it's from God. So let's continue into verses 8. Uh, finishing through 10 here, and what's going to happen, Paul starts quoting from Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Psalms and mixing all these things, and what he's trying to do is that God knew this kind of thing was going to happen in Israel. God knew that. So, verse 8, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Okay, what's happening here? Okay, well, part of it's set up in verse 7. It said, but the others were hardened as it is written and writes this piece. The majority, the, the non-remnant are hardened. Now, Pastor Henry did a great job a couple of weeks back talking about God hardening hearts. And what is the deal with that. And um, I would go back and listen to it if you you missed it, but the way he said it was that God hardens hard hearts. God hardens hard hearts. In a nutshell, it's human sin and rejection of God. A self-hardening of our hearts always precedes this judicial hardening by God, a natural consequence of our actions. But there's another warning light for us here in the text. If you want to look at verse 9 again, David says, May their table become a snare and a trap. That's warning light number two. Don't let your table trip you up. Don't let your table trip you up. What do I mean? Well, don't let God's blessings trip us up to think they are because of ourselves. Here's the deal. God will let us live our life apart from him. The table becoming a trap, the blessing actually becomes something that hinders us from trusting God and ultimately receiving Him as the ultimate blessing. We're, we're literally fooled into a complacent life by physical blessings, a life seemingly built by us. Okay, so many of you guys know I'm a big board gamer, I love board games. And there's the very interesting study that was done by a professor uh, named Paul Piff. And what he's looking at is the effect of wealth on people's character and engagement. And um, this is what they did. They took a game of Monopoly and they rigged it in favor of one of the other players. I mean, to the point where, you know, when one of the players would go past go, they'd get $400 instead of $200 and other rule changes like that. And so what happened was, is what he says, uh, as the game unfolded, we saw very dramatic differences emerge. The richer players started to move around the board louder, literally smacking the board with their piece. We, We were more likely to see signs of dominance and displays of power among the rich players. The rich players actually started to become ruder toward the other person, less and less sensitive, and more and more demonstrative of their material success. Some of the quotes from the rich players in the study said, I have money for everything. You're going to lose all your money soon. I have so much money, I'm going to buy out this whole board. I'm pretty much untouchable at this point. Okay, as a gamer, I've probably said some of those things. (laughs) And it's a little, maybe a warning light for me. But what he said, what he's saying is he conducted, uh, what's more interesting is he conducted similar experiments, but with real-life wealthy individuals and discovered identical Results. His experiments tested individuals' willingness to stop for pedestrians at crosswalks, to cheat in a game, to share a monetary gift with strangers, even to take candy from a jar clearly labeled as being for children. In every experiment, he found that higher incomes were correlated with mean behavior. What we, he says this quote: "What we've been finding is that a person's level of wealth increases their feelings of compassion and empathy, go down in their feelings of entitlement and self-interest." increase. And what's interesting to me about the study is that people in the study weren't talking about the rules or the rigged parts of it, just the fact that they were doing well and it was like because of their skill. And that's our warning here. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad about being rich, but don't forget your blessings are from God, lest you completely forget the giver. And Paul is showing us actually in this passage that God knew that this exact thing was going to happen in Israel, his people, that the table is going to trip them up and as we'll see and shouldn't be surprised that God uses this as a part of his plan. Okay, so in that first section we've seen God has not rejected Israel as a whole. He gave the reasons. God's promises are still intact. But now as we jump into verse 11, Paul answers the next logical question. Okay, if Israel isn't rejected as a whole, are we to just be okay with this tiny little remnant being saved? And it's another way of asking the same question. So verse 11, again, I ask, did they, the hardened majority, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? What's he mean here? What he means is, by the hardening of Israel, the nations can be blessed, it can go out. But how much more will the gospel go to all the world when that full inclusion comes? There's a future hope, there's an expectation of something coming. Continuing, verse 13, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, he's he's saying the same thing, but he's making it personal now. He's making it personal around my own people. Sixteen. Now he's gonna start using some analogies and we're gonna focus on the tree one here. Sixteen. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, modern Israel, and you, though a wild olive shoot Gentile, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay, one really interesting insight about this is uh, gardeners and horticulturists know this, that when they do tree grafting, that sometimes to revive a dying olive tree, you'll bring in a wild shoot and graft it into the tree for it to create and produce more fruit with some pruning. And however, this wouldn't even be possible without the support and the size of the root of the tree. So keep that in mind. And just to be really clear on this, who's the root? Who's the branches? The wild? I was kind of trying to point it out, but the, the root, is it the church? Is it Israel? Is it Jesus? Well, there's a lot of thoughts here, but I think from the context, it's, the root is the, the patriarchs. It's the remnant. The believing remnant have gone before them. Um, and the branches being broken off, are the unbelieving, the the hardened first century people of Israel, this majority, this non-remnant. And the Gentiles are being grafted in, but Paul's being really clear, don't get all high and mighty here because through them, Israel, the root, that's the reason the tree is even here. God worked through them so you Gentiles even have a chance of being grafted in. Okay, continuing in verse 19. You will say then, The Gentiles saying back to Paul, you would say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. It's another warning light for us here. Arrogance leads to being cut off the tree. Arrogance leads to be cutting off the tree. Why are the branches being broken off? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. Why are the branches being grafted in? It's faith. It's faith. We saw that clearly. Don't miss this. We know the Israelites were searching for righteousness, but chapter 10 reminded they were searching for it on their own terms in effort, not by faith. Let's not go that same way. Okay, let's continue, looking at the passage, 22. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, talking about the broken-off modern Israel branches, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Okay, part of this passage you might be thinking, uh, it sounds a little contrary to what I heard in chapter 8 from a few months back, the end of it, that nothing can separate us from God. But then it seems like Paul here is saying, but... Uh, except yourself. You can cut yourself off. Yeah, some of Israel, those branches have been cut off, but you Gentiles, watch out. You can be cut off even more easily. Now, there's a lot of verses that focus on God's promises to us, but Paul's also saying when we don't believe or we try to achieve God, we fail to continue in His kindness and have built our lives on our own righteousness, self-proclaimed goodness, something beyond God's grace, then we're not on the tree. But at the same time, as he's talking in this context here, I don't think he's talking about individual loss of salvation or losing salvation, but a degradation of faith over generations through the arrogance and unbelief that they'd be cut off and pruned. He's talking about groups of people through and through this entire passage. That's what he's doing. We've seen it with Israel. Gentiles don't go the same way. But one thing is super clear. We need to continue in His kindness. This reveals the faith we have in His grace. So as we think about that and we look at Israel's story, we're still thinking, what is the plan that God has for unbelieving Israel, this hardened majority, His people? Verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, now quoting from Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob, Israel, Israel, Jacob. That's who we're talking about. And he says, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Now listen here, as just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their Israel's disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order they may, they too may now receive mercy. Mercy as a result of what God's mercy to you, okay. Whoa, there's a lot of stuff happening here. This mystery all Israel will be saved, full number of the Gentiles. What is happening? Okay, so first of all, what's the mystery? Well, it's what we've been talking about like, what is God doing in salvation through Jesus? to God's people, Israel, and the plan for them and the future of all things. I mean, it's a big mystery. And he's trying to reveal it. And what's the plan? Well, unbelieving Israel is hardened, but for what purpose? So that the Gentiles will be saved, the nations will be saved. God's mission from Abraham has been international. It's been global. And here's the deal. Think of it this way. If all of Israel would have just gladly accepted Jesus, is it safe to say that it's possible it would have just stayed there? That the promises of Israel stay with Israel and a few Gentile converts. But God sees something bigger than that. He turns it on its head. Israel is an unbelief so that Gentiles, the gospel can go to all nations. And God wants it to be global. But then you're going, well, And what about God's original people, Israel? Well, it's in this way, the gospel going to the nations, that all Israel will be saved. Okay, so then you're thinking, well, what does Israel mean with that? All Israel will be saved. Does Israel mean the church then? The church is the new Israel, Gentiles, and Israel alike. And we see some passages in Scripture that kind of point that way. But if we're consistent with reading the Scripture here, we see that in the previous verse... It's two separate things. Israel has experienced the hardening. That's, that's, they're not part of the church. And the Gentiles coming in into what? The church. So they're separate. So if even in the same thought, Israel is separate. So it can't mean that. So Israel has to mean ethnic Israel then? But wait a second. Okay, then does that mean this is some kind of ethnic universalism? Does Paul mean literally all Israelites from all time will be saved? Well, some people hold to that thought, but I, don't, I think there's too many things in the text for us to go there. Because, I mean, even one of the things is Paul could have said, all Israelites will be saved. He could have said that. He didn't say that. And the other thing is, we've seen in this chapter, in the previous two chapters, Paul is just so forlorn about his fellow Israelites. He'd have no reason to despair, as he did in the, these chapters, about his fellow Israelites if that's what he was trying to say. So what in the world does Paul mean here? Well, I think the best making sense of it is this, that all equals the grace-chosen remnant of Israel plus a majority of unbelieving Israel becoming believers, either over time or in one large event. Meaning the hardening is lifted and salvation coming to all, and all meaning including the hardened majority, both remnant and hardened majority. He's speaking of a time in the future where is many Jewish believers in Jesus. Because there are a couple other clues in the text here. We know the Jewish people are scattered at this time. The different tribes of Israel scattered. And Paul even mentioned his, his tribal identity at the beginning of the passage. If you remember, tribe of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin. And so the gospel going to the Gentiles, to all the world where the Jews are scattered too. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Not all Israelites without exception, but all Israel. Okay, this is a super tough text and there's so many thoughts you could when you if you study this bit but this is my best making sense of it and centuries upon centuries of theologians thinking about it and and i love what uh, uh, theologian frederick bruce says about this he all means all without distinction rather than all without exception all without distinction rather than all without exception Okay, we've, we've covered a lot of the chapter, and you're probably thinking, okay, I think I get what's happening, but so what? What, what does that mean for me right now? I, I, don't, I don't get it. I'm not even sure what it means for them when Paul was writing to them. But there are three heart shifts that we need to make based off this text that God calls us all to make. And we're clued into what those are from the warning lights I pointed out along the way. So let's look at those three shifts. Warning light number one was avoid do-it-yourself salvation. Doing it ourselves is being resistant to God and leads to the hardening of our hearts. So we have to move from resistance to relationship. A relationship based on grace, by trusting in God's grace, not our works. When, we, when you find yourself comparing yourself as better than others or more worthy of God's grace, we need to make this shift. I've been in that spot. We need to make that shift back to God's grace. That's that first shift from resistance to relationship. And then warning light number two was don't let your table trip you up. Don't let God's blessings trip you up To think they are because of ourselves. God will let us live our life apart from Him. We need to move from tripping to trusting. Don't let the great things in your life become something you've created or something of ultimate importance. Thank God for His trustworthiness. Focus on His goodness and see the blessings that you've received as from Him, not from you. Tripping to trusting. And the warning light number three was arrogance leads to being cut off the tree or revealing you were already cut off. But good news is you can be grafted in again. We need to move from rejection to revival. From rejection to revival. Arrogance leads to rejecting God in our lives. And one of the best ways to combat this is to share and remember our own story of salvation, how Jesus has saved us, to remember it. And and you might be thinking about these shifts like, okay, I I agree with these shifts, but how how do I move in that direction? Well, Paul actually points it out in the text. It's in verse 22. He says, continue in his kindness. Continue in His kindness. We re- need to remember salvation is found only in the grace, mercy, and kindness of Jesus. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we also need daily reminders of this truth. Because I think sometimes as Christians we get into patterns where we think our way, the way of Jesus, is it's just one of the ways in this crazy world. We live our life as if the other people in our life or the religions and philosophical frameworks of our neighbors and coworkers are as good or as close to as good and we act as if people might not need the gospel and if we're honest with ourselves we might even think god's gonna do what he's gonna do he doesn't need me to share christ with that person I used to deal, when we looked at the text, if there's any people group that would seemingly have a special place in God's heart, it's the Jewish people, it's the Israelites, as we saw in the passages. But remember what Paul says. He is so sad and upset about the Israelites, his kin, his heart is breaking with where they're standing with God, that he would give up his own salvation so that some of them would be saved. And he has a huge hope for them. So think of it this way, if the people who God used to bring about the Messiah, also need the Messiah, how much more does everyone around us need Him? If it's been a long time since you've had a spiritual conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus or a not yet Christian, I invite you to pray, not not for the conversation, but that God would break our hearts for the lost for our friends, for our neighbors, for our co-workers. Just like Paul's heart is so broken for those around him, God wants our heart to be broken for those around us. You see in the plan that the mercy is to go to the Gentiles so that Israel will see that mercy and want that mercy and receive that mercy, and that's what God wants to do with us. The story of our salvation, the mercy he showed us, shared with others so they may receive God's mercy. You might be thinking, okay, Jonathan, I agree we should be passionate about this. Well, I'm scared. What if they don't like me or it's going to just weird out our relationship or they're going to stop wanting to hang out with me or just completely reject the message? Well, that's everything that happens to Paul and way worse. And his heart is still continually for them, a, a passion fueled for all people to know Jesus. So I I say to you, just whoever you have in your mind right now, just go in expecting resistance, but hope for relationship. Go in expecting you're going to trip up on your words, but trust that God's going to use those tripped up words. Go in expecting rejection, but hoping for revival. That's going to start something. Even that group of friends or those neighbors or those coworkers. By engaging in God's mission believing that God can do the impossible in the most obstinate of people. I mean, if there's any people that should follow Jesus, it's the people of the promises and most aren't. But if God has a plan for them and Paul is holding out hope for them, there's no one beyond hope. There's no one beyond hope. No one. So I encourage you to begin or re-engage with your blessed list praying for those in your life far from God. Now, if you don't remember what the BLESS is, or if you're new with us and you don't know what that is, let me give you a quick reminder. BLESS is just an acronym to help us think through some things we can do to move towards people far from God and taking specific steps. So, B is to begin with prayer, prayer for our hearts to be broken for people and for God to be working on their heart. L is to listen with care and listening in the small things because when you listen in the small things in people's life, you get to listen in the big things when they happen. And E, E together, you get to share your life, experience life together with them. And S is to serve them. And sometimes that means being served by them, being in relationship with them. And S, sharing your story, sharing the story of the gospel. And so, here's the deal. If you don't have a blessed list or you don't, you're like, oh, that seems like too much to take on right now. Just put one name in your phone before you get in the car. One name. And just start praying for that person every day. Just one name and see what God does with that. Because there is no hope outside of Jesus. It's in him. We, a resistant people, have been restored into relationship. Us, A people of failure that have found a faithful God. Us, A people who once rejected, now revived from death to life. And it's in Jesus, continuing in his kindness, that's the people that we are. And that's why when we gather every week, remember the kindness Jesus showed us through his life, his death, and resurrection. But before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to pray, and I'm going to pray very specifically the rest of the chapter, oriented towards God. So you can either pray with me uh, as, in your mind as I read through the next scriptures, or just quietly close your eyes and pray as I pray the rest of the end of the chapter of Romans. God, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of you, God. How unsearchable are your judgments and your paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of you, Lord? Or who has been your counselor? Who has ever given to you, God, that you should repay them? For from you and through you and for you are all things. To you be the glory forever. Father, I thank you for how much you love us, how much mercy and grace that you extend to us, that you hold your hands open to us to come to you. And that you gave us Jesus so we can be in relationship with you and continue in your kindness and be with you forever. But God, in that mercy you've shown us, would you give us a passion for those around us? Do a work in our heart for the people in our life. We need your help. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be working in people's hearts here right now. Those listening, those watching online, I pray that you be working in their hearts. Do what you would need to do in response to your word. We love you.